Well, good morning, everyone. I have to start off by saying, yes, I do have a black box on my back and an antenna sticking up here. It's because I forgot to wear something with pockets or a belt. And yeah, I had a few interesting comments last service. (laughs) Someone asked me where my remote control was. (laughs) Somebody else said, your secret communicator is showing. So it's there, and we'll pray that technology doesn't fail today. So when Pastor Paul invited Pastor John and I to do a three-part series with him on discipleship, I have to admit my first thought was, hmm, discipleship. Kind of sounds a little bit boring for three sermons in a row, but, you know, I highly respect Pastor Paul, and I've been taught to obey my elders, so I said, okay. (laughs) I love to preach the great stories of the Bible. I love to talk about Joseph down there in the well, and Daniel in the lion's den, and and in the New Testament, all the parables and miracles of Jesus, and um, the stories of Paul's missionary journeys. But you know what? As I was working on looking at the things that Jesus says specifically about discipleship, I realized some of the most compelling and even shocking sayings that Jesus said involved a call to follow him. So I was hooked. Good job, Paul. And your sermon wasn't boring last week either. So today, as we look at Luke 9, chapters 57, verses 57 through 62, I want to talk about the high cost of discipleship as we take a look at these three men as they encountered Jesus on their way to Jerusalem. It's no accident that the stories of these three men and their desire to follow Jesus comes right after a passage about a Samaritan village that rejected Jesus and his disciples. Jesus experienced rejection. So did those who follow him. But following him comes with a cost, a high cost, and he places a high priority on discipleship. Anyone who follows him and makes that commitment to follow him will also experience rejection. Jesus doesn't want anyone to follow him without first counting the cost. I came across this cartoon that shows a picture of a church building with a large billboard in front. And on the billboard it says, The Light Church. 24% fewer commitments. Home of the 7.5% tithe. 15-minute sermons. 45-minute worship services. We have only eight commandments. Your choice. And only three spiritual laws and an 800-year millennium. Everything you've always wanted in a church and less. A Gallup poll contends that fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. Many who call themselves Christians don't even know the basic Christian teachings. They don't know the books of the Bible the way Carl and Jill taught the second graders. And they don't live their lives any different than a non-Christian. In our text, Jesus makes some radical demands on his followers. Ironically, just two verses later, he laments that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. In our story today, we have three potential laborers, but Jesus warns them, it's not going to be easy if you choose to follow me. So let's take a look at what's happening in these verses. Luke tells us Jesus is walking along the road with people following him, as what usually happened. 
And in the verses preceding, we learn that he's on his way to Jerusalem, and his earthly life is about to come to an end. A quick review of the chapters just before this one tell us Jesus has fed more than 5,000 people, heals a demon-possessed boy, and has been transfigured before Peter, James, and John. So time with his disciples are drawing to an end. But I'm sure there's still so much more he wants to teach them. And it appears that they have a lot to learn as well. So they are making their way into Jerusalem, and it turns out to be quite an eventful walk. At some point on the journey, a fight breaks out between the disciples because they're arguing about who would be the greatest among them. I love what Jesus does here. He brings a small child and stands that child before his disciples, and he says, the one who is least among you is the greatest. He also has to strongly rebuke his disciples because they want to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritan village that rejected them. Jesus had sent them ahead to the village to get things ready for his arrival. But the Samaritans there, they didn't want Jesus and his disciples to come there. And so his disciples asked if they should destroy the village. Now, come on, does that sound like something Jesus would want them to do? It seems like they have an awful lot to learn, even though they've been with him for a couple years by now. By the way, I love this. The parable of the Good Samaritan comes a little bit after this in the next chapter. It's no wonder Jesus made a Samaritan man the hero of the story after the behavior of James and John. So here they are walking along the way, and there's some men who are apparently in the group following Jesus, and they volunteer to continue on with the trip. But with each of these three stories, we're sort of left hanging. We we don't actually know what they decided to do. Did they follow Jesus, or did they turn back? We don't know the rest of the story. I kind of wish we did, but I guess we have to just not know. So the first of the three men, we'll call him man number one, he declared that he was willing to go wherever Jesus went. And he seems pretty resolute. He's willing to follow Jesus. But no, Jesus didn't say what I would have said, which would have been something like, oh, welcome on board. Thanks for signing up. We're glad to have you as part of the team. No. Instead, Jesus says, you know, this is going to be hard. We won't have a home. We won't have a place to sleep at night. And even the wild animals will have a home and will be better off than you will be if you follow me. What a warning. It's not very encouraging. But it was honest. This man needed to know exactly what he was getting into if he did decide to follow Jesus wherever he went. I wonder if this man thought that maybe he would be following a regular old rabbi around. Because in those days, that's what people did. If a rabbi came to town, people would follow behind him to try to learn things from them and listen to them as they taught. So following a rabbi was not an unusual thing to do. There were also prophets who were followed by interested people. The prophets were more like itinerant preachers, and their followers would support them financially because often they would be far away from home and didn't have any other way to make a living. But following Jesus is something different altogether. Jesus is more than a rabbi, more than a prophet. He called his followers 
to complete faithfulness to God with total dedication. The journey of a follower of Jesus included not knowing where they would eat or sleep, experiencing rejection and pain, persecution and danger, and possibly death. So man number one may have thought following Jesus could be a part-time thing. He may have thought he'd be able to go home to his family at night or take a break every now and then and rest up when he was tired or just decide on some days that he didn't want to go with Jesus. But Jesus makes himself perfectly clear. Following him is not a part-time endeavor. It's all or nothing. So again, I wonder... What did man number one do? What did he decide? Did he take up the mantle and follow Jesus? Or did he turn away? Man number two, he's, he's a bit different because Jesus actually invites him to be a follower. This man seems very interested, but he has one request to make of Jesus. He wants to bury his father first. Okay, nothing wrong with that in our eyes. In fact... Yesterday, we buried my father-in-law, and family came from all over, the, the western, all from Utah and, and, and from other parts, to be there. It was important for us to be together as a family. And it seems a, a bit harsh when Jesus says, let the dead bury their own, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Actually seems disrespectful and even shocking People in those days were taught to honor their parents, and providing an honorable burial ritual would have been expected of a Jew. But we don't know if man number two's father was even close to death, or even sick, or elderly. Maybe this guy was just putting off the call of discipleship until it was more convenient. There might be a bit more to Jesus' reply than what we read. After all, this is Jesus. He knows this man. He knows this man's family. More importantly, he knows the intention of this man's heart. Something that's very interesting to note is that for a teacher or a rabbi to invite someone to follow them was unusual but but very admirable. Most students would seek out a rabbi that they wished to follow, and they could even be turned away if the rabbi saw no potential for them to excel as a student. But every once in a while, there would be an exception— When a rabbi sought out his own student and invited that person to follow him, that would mean the rabbi considered the student to have a great deal of potential for learning. It would have been a pretty remarkable affirmation of the confidence that a rabbi would have in a student to invite him to become a follower. Knowing that, I can see why a few eyebrows were raised when Jesus chose his 12 disciples a ragtag group of fishermen, a zealot, and even a tax collector. And now these three men. But he's not inviting this man to come without requiring him to bump down his family commitment to second place. Burial rituals in those days consisted of preparing the body for burial, washing it, anointing it with oils and spices, wrapping it up with strips of cloth, And if you could, hiring professional mourners, rearranging the family's home to put the body in the meeting place where everyone would file by to give their respects. And then food needed to be prepared for all the the guests in another location that was considered clean because it was away from the dead body. And then after two days, 
a funeral procession would have been arranged and people would have been lined up to carry the body to where it would be buried. That's a lot of work for the deceased person's family to do, especially if it's the death of a patriarch. But it needed to be done, and quickly and respectfully. So man number two may have sensed his father was close to death, or maybe he just wanted to wait until that time came before following Jesus. But that's not the way of the kingdom. Jesus makes it clear carrying the gift of life to others is more important than caring for the dead. Now, I'm sure that Jesus wasn't telling us to forsake our family responsibilities. But what he's saying is true discipleship requires instant action. There's a sacrifice involved in following Jesus. Now, he knows this man's true reason for hesitating to go right then and there. And Jesus always gives commands based on true motives. Now, the third story, man number three. It's a bit similar. He has a desire to follow Jesus just like man number one does. But he wants to go back and say goodbye to his family first. It seems pretty reasonable to me, but not to Jesus. He reminds this man that those who look back to their old life are not fit for the kingdom. Well, I have to admit, this one seems harsh. (laughs) If my kids left to go away to further their education or to go off on the mission field and didn't come home first to say goodbye, I'd be hurt. I'd be devastated. But again, Jesus knows the situation. He knows the intention of this man's heart. And maybe going to say goodbye may mean more than it sounds on the surface. It may have meant that this man was not willing to let go of the things of his past and would continue looking back. Jesus may have been thinking about a few Old Testament examples of people who did look back and never made it to the place that God prepared for them. Lot's wife comes to mind. She was told not to look back, and we all know what happened to her. The Israelites complained to Moses and threatened to go back to Egypt and ended up spending 40 years in the desert, and most of them not making it to the promised land after all. Those who cling to their old life may not be ready for the new life Jesus offers. He wants to transform us, as Paul says, into new creations. That requires us to stop conforming to the world and to move forward and seek first the kingdom of God. True disciples of Christ cannot hang on to their old lives, but must be prepared for the new life that Christ offers, which often requires sacrifice. Jesus uses this imagery of someone trying to plow a field and looking back, and it reminds me of something that happened a long time ago to my dad and I. We were working on the lawn. I was picking up sticks in the, in the side yard, and he was driving our old lawn tractor mowing the, the yard. And uh, for some reason, he turned his head to talk to me and didn't realize that he was coming underneath a big pine tree. And, and as he came under the pine tree, a big branch swiped his glasses off of his face, and he reached to grab his glasses as they were flying through the air and at the same time turned to see that he was driving right into the tree trunk. So he turned really fast with the handle, with the steering wheel, and pulled it right off. (laughs) Ended up hitting the tree after all, and it was just a comedy of errors. Nobody got hurt. I, I was on the ground laughing and just 
yeah, <laughs> we were both laughing because he could see the hilarity of the comedy of errors that happened. But the point is, looking back while you're mowing or plowing or whatever, not a very good idea. So we must be willing to abandon all that we gained security from in our past and dedicate all that we have to living the life Jesus calls us to. Things that distract us, things that hold us back or tempt us to take our eyes off of Jesus, they need to be put behind us, and we need to keep from looking back at them. Whatever man number three was planning on going back to do, that was something that kept him from wholeheartedly following Jesus. Jesus' response in shocking words to these potential disciples shows us just how seriously he takes the call to follow him. There's a difference between interest and commitment. Discipleship isn't something we just should be interested in. It's something to pursue with everything we have. It's not a part-time call. It's a lifetime goal. Our priorities need to be Jesus first and then family. I remember once saying this in a Bible class at the academy, and our international students were so shocked and and actually even offended when I said that because all of their lives they're taught their families are number one. There's nothing more important than their families. Respecting mom and dad comes before everything else in their society. I hope and pray someday they'll understand the love of Jesus, and change their priority. This is a hard but necessary teaching. I believe that's why we have these three examples and these three men in their situations and the honest and forthright responses of Jesus. There may be a time when we're tempted to put something else above our call to follow Jesus. Like man number three who says, I will follow you, but... That little word, but, may keep us from a total commitment to Jesus. But what about our family? Now, Paul tells us that we're worse than unbelievers, and we've denied the faith if we don't take care of our families. So we're not supposed to neglect them. They're extremely important. We're supposed to take care of them and honor them. The problem comes when we love our family members more dearly than we love Jesus. This is hard. This is a hard one for me. I'm a wife and a mother and a grandmother now. I love my family members, but they need to be in second place. I say Jesus is number one. Do I really mean that in my heart? If I love my family members more than I love Jesus, I've got a lot to work on. For others, there may be something else that they struggle with being in first place. Maybe money or possessions. Would we give all we have to follow Jesus? The story of the rich young ruler comes to mind. This man asked Jesus what he must do to gain eternal life. And Jesus' response was that he needed to sell all of his possessions and give away all his wealth to the poor. Then and only then could he follow Jesus. In this case, we do know the outcome of the story. His decision was not to follow Jesus. He could not give up trusting in the security of his possessions. So he turns back, grieving that he could not have the eternal life that he so desperately was seeking. 
Jesus says a few other shocking things in Luke chapter 14, such as, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hard words. But here to make a very strong point, there's a high cost involved in following Jesus. Pastor Paul talked last week about um, Don Little's book, Effective Discipling. And in that book, he gives us some really good examples of parables that Jesus tells his listeners that have to do with this call to radically obey him. The parable of the tower builders, one. The parable of the king that's about to engage in war. They both conclude with this sober challenge. Luke fourteen thirty three. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. It's all or nothing with Jesus. The world may challenge us to make decisions based on things that affirm our self-esteem or go along with the cultural norms. We may have to stand up for integrity in a situation that would be hard for us. Maybe it would cost us our job or our reputation. Whatever it is that gets in the way of us giving 100% of ourselves to Christ needs not to be part of our lives any longer. Don Little sums it up nicely for us. The central theme of Jesus' teaching on discipleship during his journey to Jerusalem is that discipleship involves a fundamental posture of strong faith and a loving and merciful God. It's a radical call to abandon dependency on comforts, possessions, reputation, and self. It's a call to trust God for our lives so that we can treat others as God treats them, with mercy, with love, and with compassion. Jesus is giving us a chance to enter into a new way of life that involves total commitment to him and challenges the existing order of living for self. So, is it worth it? Taking our eyes off of ourselves, leaving everything else behind, not looking back to be a disciple of Jesus? Absolutely. There's nothing else in this earth that's worth more. It's worth giving up anything, everything, to follow him. These stories from Luke 9 highlight the fundamental priority of discipleship, living for Jesus 100%. The only way to follow him is totally. Doing this requires a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of dedication, and it will challenge us for the rest of our lives. Living for Jesus is a call we receive when we first give our lives to him, and it will continue till our last day. May we be faithful disciples of Christ, no matter the cost. Would you please pray with me? Father, thank you for these words. Jesus, thank you for your example. Thank you, Lord, for not only calling us, but giving us hope and love and the power that we need to follow you completely. Help us 100%, Lord, to open our hearts to you and follow you completely. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.